Welcome, lads and lasses, to an episode of Oi, Oh Your Zombies. If you're wondering why I'm trying to speak with this horrible, godforsaken Scottish accent, it has a lot to do with uh, the fact that Pixar's Brave is opening this week. Uh, I had a chance to see it. I know you had a chance mm -hmm. to see it, and you'll be reviewing it later this week. But one of the, the interesting side effects is that uh, you will feel compelled to walk around and try to do a really bad Scottish accent. It's, it's that much fun. Uh, my name is Chris Abel, and the handsome character through the looking glass over there is Mr. Richard Krause. The blushing. I feel coy all of a sudden. <laughs> coy. Coy. Um, and uh, we want to thank everybody who participates in our weekly game, Movie Pistols at Dawn. Yes. Last week we talked about beards, and uh, we asked you all to go to our website at hailyouzombies.com and to uh, vote. We love it when you vote. Thank you, everybody who participated, because it allows us to kind of, you know, with mystery and suspense, check out and see uh, how you're reacting to the content that we're putting out there. And surprise, surprise, it would seem this week that it was a draw, our first draw. I demand a recount. <laughs> I demand a recount. Uh, All right. I'm willing and, to accept a draw, but just this one time. Just this one time? Yeah. Well, we will play again, so there will be a chance for All you right. to claim victory one more time. Um, coming up in this episode, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, restaurants that have put the undead on their menu. Uh, we're also going to touch briefly upon some interesting new concepts in the world of art. But first off, Mr. Krause here has got a really cool story for us. Well, you know, it's really not, so th this is more just like a personal rant, more than anything else. Oh, we like uh, rants. rants. Yeah, no, we, we like rants well enough. I mean, what, what has been happening a little bit lately, and what's been happening for years, but uh, in particular, I had to block someone <gasps> from my Twitter account. And, you know, I'm not someone who, who does that. You, you know, I, I really view Twitter and Facebook as kind of an open forum for the exchange of ideas or cat videos or, you know, <laughs> pictures from your grandma's birthday, whatever it is that you want to put up there. By and large, I'm pretty cool with it. I, I, I don't really care what goes up there as long as it's not you know, hurtful or, or you know, hate, uh, you know, propaganda or something like that. I'm, I'm willing to have a look at it all. Bring all, love all. I'm, I'm very magnanimous that way. But uh, for the last number of weeks, uh, every Saturday morning, uh, I wake up to a barrage of, like, at first I found them funny. Uh, <laughs> then I started to find them a little tiresome. And then, you know, I, I, I will explain how I felt uh, on this uh, past Saturday morning. When I woke up uh, after, you know, being on television on Friday night, and it's the same hit that I do every Friday. Uh, it re-airs. I do it around 7.30. Uh, no, I do it around 6.40 here in Toronto. And then it airs at various times across the country. And it airs all night. Right. So someone, somewhere, Regina, let's be specific about this, uh, <laughs> a guy named Ed in Regina, and I'm not going to give away his handle. No. Because I don't want to encourage any more of this. Uh, uh, watches it, and I think he must watch it late at night because the tweets start cutting, coming in kind of late at night. And they just sort of uh, suggest uh, various different ways that I might want to improve my skills as a movie critic. And you know what? I'm cool with that. Listen, you know, I have an opinion about uh, things and very strong opinions. I make my living having opinions. I welcome, I welcome people with opinions. Sure. Uh, but, but, 
and at first, as I say, I, I, started, I found this guy really funny because for weeks uh, he obsessed about one thing. He, he would say, um, you know, when you're giving, and, and this is obviously much longer, but apparently I say the words, of course, a fair amount. Right. So, in, so I would be giving uh, the, the plot description of Men in Black 3, and I would say, you know, of course, then, Will Smith would blah, blah, blah. And this, it would just drive this guy. It would, it would make him crazy. It would enrage him. So I would get uh, emails about him from him uh, saying that it's not obvious, so you shouldn't use the words, of course. Stop it immediately in, in, uh, in capital, all capital letters. Now, I think what he was failing to realize is that my of courses were frequently uh, kind of like sarcastic references to really completely far-fetched plot uh, turns and plot devices that so often get passed off. And as a viewer, we're just supposed to sit back and kind of soak it in and go, well, it's in a movie, so you know, we have to accept that th this is the, the turn that this particular story is taking. I like to kind of highlight it by poking a little fun and going, well, of course, and then right. inserting uh, the most outrageous, weird little punches. Of course, the nuance is lost on this guy. So I would get emails about this, and they came in for weeks. The of course thing, just throw them mad, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, this past week, and in the first funny, I was kind of amused by it. Uh, this past week, though, I woke up, and there were five of them, five or six of them. And each, there was no of course. Uh, he's apparently broken me of that habit. Uh, he, he, this time... Um, was uh, talking about, you know, uh, I don't, uh, you know, anyone can do your job. Uh, you know, I have a, an opinion. My opinion is just as valid as yours. You sit on your ass and do nothing. Blah blah blah. It's just, it started to to get into a different realm. And you know, for me, um, I, I thought about whether to block this guy or not because, really, honestly, I'm a public person. My Twitter and Facebook accounts are open. I don't really curate them as some people do. I don't. Uh, um, I don't. If you want to friend me on Facebook, I, I accept all comers. I don't really uh, go too far out of my way to sort of pick and choose people. And so, you know, I, I thought I should just let it go and not really care about it. So I retweeted them because, frankly, I thought you know they were. The, I, I just wanted to see what other people thought. Sure. And uh, and other people beat them up kind of badly uh, uh, on, yeah. on Twitter, and, which I didn't do. I did not do that. No. Uh, so then I thought, you know what, I have to block this guy because. Um, I realized what it was doing to me is it was making me feel really sorry for him. Because what I think I realized while I was reading these is that at first I thought they were kind of funny when they came in because he was so obsessive about this. And then um, after a while, I began to really feel like here was this lonely person sitting wherever it is that he's sitting in front of his television. And all he has in his life, really, is to uh, try and contact somehow, reach out and contact, you know, people that he sees on television. But he does it in really odd ways that right. isn't likely to get much of a response from people. And I thought, you know what, I, I just don't think that I need this kind of uh, uh, negativity and not just that, but this kind of uh, presence around me. Well, and it's not healthy for the other guy as well. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's, 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 like that's, that's, that's sort of more of my point. These uh, tweets that he was sending speak volumes about him and very little about me. And as I began to read these, I realized that I wasn't really reading anything about myself, or certainly nothing that I didn't know. Um, what I was reading was, uh, you know, this sort of um, 
guy who was kind of laying himself bare in these. And I, the thing is, I don't think he realizes that he's doing it. No. And I was just kind of like, you know what? I think I might be done here. And so I, for the first time ever, I blocked somebody. <laughs> well, and, and you, you have to do that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's once it's gotten to a point where it's just a pattern. I mean, you know, the, the whole point of having a free exchange of ideas is that when both people have fully expressed their point of view, right. you should be able to shake hands and walk away. Yeah. And so when you have somebody who just, it's like a bone that they're gnawing on, and it's yeah. a bitter bone and one that's filled with regret, and who knows what's going on, uh, you know. Uh, these, today, I mean, the wonderful thing about um, uh, our decade is that if you feel that you want to get involved in criticism or you want to join mm -hmm. in and do something about culture, there are so many avenues by which you can do that. Plenty yep. of people right here on, on YouTube do this on a regular basis and actually are very successful in building up an audience. Maybe not a career, but right. if you want to get out there and at least engage with other people and have people listen to you, there's options. You can go ahead and do it. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, mean, I know my story was kind of long and weird and rambling, but I... I, I like long and weird and long, rambling. I'm still like a little... <laughs> this is why you're here, for long and weird and rambling. Come on, yeah. I'm still just like a little conflicted about how I feel about blocking this guy, though, because right. only because, you know, I, I, I don't... Uh, it, it feels to me like too easy a solution. But, you know, I, I, I also, I don't necessarily want to engage this guy either because I don't really feel that he's uh, open to any kind of exchange of ideas. Also, you know, his, his uh, profile doesn't have a photograph. Um, who knows whether the name is real or not. It's Ed something, and then there's a bunch of numbers after it. So, I mean, I don't know. It, it seems uh, legitimate to me. It doesn't seem just like a troll with a, with a bone to pick with me particularly because if uh, I, I clicked on his site, on his Twitter site, and there were uh, just, I mean, dozens of tweets to other media people. <laughs> and the, of course, thing comes up a little bit, uh, insulting remarks. Like, you're, as I say, listen, I'm not, I, I, I welcome discourse. Mm -hmm. I, I invite it. I don't mind it. Um, I, but, you know, I have the courage to put my face and uh, my opinions in the same package. I'm not anonymous in any way about anything that I do. In fact, I'm a very public person in terms of, of the radio and television and print work that I do and, and the podcast stuff. So, you know, I'm not afraid to put it out there. And I, I think the rule that I'm going to have to make is that anyone who, uh, is a, you know, who isn't willing to uh, uh, identify themselves, no photographs, nothing, that they just get, they get nothing from me. They, they don't get friended or they don't get, uh, uh, or they get blocked. Maybe I'll start blocking more people. Yeah. No, I mean, that's kind of what you have to do. Weed out the, the, the bad. And, you, you know, as you said, if, if it's negativity, that's not helping anybody. It doesn't help it's, either side. No, it doesn't help anybody. And this guy, I mean, I really do kind of feel that his, his tweets speak volumes about him and not so much about me. So maybe, uh, you know, he, the thing is he'll probably never even realize that I blocked him. But uh, he, he perhaps the, 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 when his tweets go unanswered, he will... Uh, He'll get a little self-reflective. I doubt it. But I doubt it. He'll, he'll just redirect his energy to somebody else. You know, next thing, I'll start getting those tweets. Thank That's you. right. All right. So uh, what I wanted to talk about uh, is also about kind of people putting themselves out there in a very uh, unusual way. Uh, I want to talk about three really cool themed restaurants that I think right. on paper shouldn't make any sense at all that anybody would be able to keep right. them going. But they're doing well. Uh, the first one is called Zombie Burger. 
mm. if you can imagine. So uh, a restaurant that not only serves burgers, uh, is it burger meat that's made by zombies or made from zombies? I'm not entirely sure. I would hope made by zombies. <laughs> so you're all it would make more sense if zombies were the I don't know. So here's some imagery from their, uh, right. their website. Right. You can see that they've got lots of zombie paraphernalia yeah. on the walls and people who get dressed up. Uh, let's see if I can pull up one of the other cool photographs that they have here. I like this. This is a, a sign that is on their um, – tells you where to find the bathrooms. Let me see. Here we are. <laughs> so oh, see that's cool. Got, that's cool. That so there is a, a great amount of, yeah. um, of humor and wit in right. terms of what they are doing. Uh, I'll tell you, um, the menu is really, really creative. They have uh, – first of all, it's, it's a zombie burger place that's open till 2 a.m. So other burger joints might close a little sooner. Right. They're there to be up very late past the midnight hour. Uh, they serve things like zombie poutine. Mm. Um, they've got a, a, a burger called They're Coming to Get You, Barbara. <laughs> uh, They're Coming one. to Get You, Barbara. That's how they said in the movie. There's trailer trash zombies, uh, undead Elvis burgers. Oh. Uh, if you like zombie, uh, they, uh, if you're a fan of hot dogs, they have zombie dogs. Mm. Uh, they have a, a burger in honor of George Romero. Of called, course. Called Romero's Pitts Burger. Ah. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, their salads are known as Soylent Greens. Mm. Um, the Soylent Greens of people. That's right, completely. <laughs> and, and the amazing thing is that people actually sort of order the, these things and eat them. Uh, right. It looks like a really cool place. And, and where is this place? Uh, it's in Des Moines, Iowa. So not exactly zombie capital of the world. Yeah, yeah. Or um, really what you would imagine to be uh, kind of out there enough to so like I can see this place being in you know New York or Toronto or or you know a, a sort of a larger center, but yeah. uh, that's. Funny. In, in, in Des Moines, Iowa, there's a photograph of what the place looks like. It looks yeah. actually really, really slick. Kind of uh, industrial looking. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, they got some pretty cool uh, desserts. There's a zombie bride cake shake. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, they're known for their very creative uh, milkshakes. They've got like maple shakes and stuff like that. Right. Uh, the, the next place that I wanted to talk about, yeah, let's get that off there, is actually called Hell Pizza. And Hell Pizza has been so successful that they now have franchises and chains all around the world. It is really amazing. Uh, let's see if I can pull up some of the photos here. Do to do. Is that it there? And did this start? Because there's a place called like Hell Louisiana or something like that. Is that where it started? No, this is from Australia and New Zealand. Uh -huh. So here we'll pull up uh, that little photo there. This is a guy hanging outside. <laughs> oh. And the, um, the idea is it's a kind of a Hellcat, 1950s, hellacious, sinful kind of theme to, right. to what they do. Um, they have uh, a number of uh, pizzas that are based off of the seven, different, seven, seven deadly sins. Right. So you can get gluttony. You can get greed. Wrath. You can get lust pizza, that yeah. kind of stuff like that. Uh, and then uh, they've got a couple of really cool promotions here. Let me see if I pull up this one image. Where did it go? There we are. Da -da -da. What they're, they're doing right now is called pizza roulette. And the concept is that you buy a pizza, but nobody knows this. One of the slices has been loaded with extra spicy and hot <laughs> ingredients. And so as you and your friends start to eat over the night, somebody, somebody's going to get loaded with uh, the hot That's one. hilarious. Uh, and then I love this. This is uh, something that they did. <laughs> I like, actually, I like the, the slogan here. 
it doesn't cost, but someone pays. It's <laughs> <laughs> very, very cool. Uh, so this is what I wanted to show right here. This I love. So one of the concepts they've come up with is that they're pizza boxes. When you oh, get a yeah. pizza box, the lid actually pulls off and it folds into a small little coffin <laughs> so that everybody can put their pizza crusts in there. That's a way to collect it. <laughs> That's funny. That's very, very cool. And then finally, uh, also along a similar theme, there's a bar in Japan. So we've gone from Des Moines, Iowa right. to Australia, New Zealand. Actually, there's a Hell, uh, pe there's a hell Pizza in Vancouver. So really? One day, yeah, if I get to Vancouver, yeah, I'm going to have that place. Hell Pizza, yeah. Hell Pizza, yeah. for sure. Uh, but in Japan, they actually have a bar based off of the video game company Capcom. And what am I looking for? Here we are. Here we go. So it's uh, actually, is that the photo? Do, do, do. We'll pull it up here. So when you go in, you can order a number of things. This is their brain cake. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. actually a cake with raspberry jam inside the center. Uh, they make a lot of meals that are based off of various video games, uh, such as Resident Evil, right. uh, Monster Hunter. I'll pull up one of their other meals, which I thought was very creative. Uh, this is it here. Mm -hmm. I thought this was pretty brilliant. Uh, you can actually get a chicken leg that has been wrapped in bacon to make it sculpt and to, to change the shape of it to make it look like it's actually the flank of a monster. So it's no longer <laughs> chicken meat. It's now actually monster meat. Right, that's uh, right. using bacon to kind of rechange it. And then the last image I'm going to pull up here. Where did it go? <laughs> There's, ah, a, sit there. There, there's a, a show on the Food Network called The World's Weirdest Restaurants. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and they have a place, and I don't know where this was, because I've only ever seen the ads for it, but uh, there's a place where a monkey is bringing you your beer. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I know, I know. There's nothing better. So what's this? So what we're looking at here at the Capcom bar is a T-virus vaccine that comes mm -hmm. loaded in a syringe, and uh, you're given a drink that you can inject it into that has an ice cube shaped like a brain. That's hilarious. Yeah, wow. Yeah. It's pretty pretty crazy, pretty amazing. Uh, and, of course, this being a video game bar, when you go there, uh, you can actually play video games from the booth. Right. They have wireless controllers with television screens. The That's waiters funny. come, and when they deliver food, they actually recite some of the famous quotes from video games. Right. Uh, and you can collect stamps every time you visit the bar. If you order every food item or every drink item, they come over with a limited collection, uh, collector's edition, you know, sort of tchotchke for you to take yeah. on. <laughs> really fun. I, I love that kind of creativity. Yeah. Um, but it's always kind of a, a big daring move to try to open up a place like that because you have to wonder, are people actually going to come and want to eat the food? Well, it's so niche right? Would, would you go more than once? I mean, I think that the thing is, like, you get a lot of people going, oh, it might be fun to go for my birthday. or my, But would you go, you know, over and over again? Yeah, every That's Thursday great. night's zombie burger night. You know, zombie I don't burger know. night. Yeah, <laughs> I want me some brain pie. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'd go a lot. I would go. Yeah. I would certainly go. I don't know if I'd go a lot though. Right. Hmm. So, uh, what your well, next topic is? Well, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. I found this. I I want to talk about readable art a little bit, but uh, I just wanted to follow up. Last week, I talked about Willy Wonka a little bit. Right. Okay. We had Gene Wilder's letters, and I talked about the, the movie and how Gene Wilder really helped to kind of uh, create the, the character that we saw in Willy Wonka and how much I liked the idea that he would um, 
make suggestions. For instance, the you know the, the famous scene where he's we are first introducing him. He's walking down the, this long walkway, cobblestone walkway, and he trips and falls, and you know he drops his cane. And you think, oh no! And he does a somersault, and he comes back up, and he's back on his feet. And Gene Wilder said, you know, I want to put that in there because I want people to know from that moment on that everything that Willy Wonka does or says should be examined. It's not necessarily always always telling the truth. I love moments like that in movies that uh, don't use dialogue to tell you something about the character, to use physical action. So we talked about that last week. So then this week, this popped up. So uh, it's a story that I found on the internet called The Filthiest Joke Ever Hidden in a Children's Movie. <laughs> now, uh, one of the, and it says here, one of the most beloved and off-quoted moments in the ridiculously beloved and off-quoted film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh, is the sequence in which the unbalanced candy maker displays his newest invention, which is lickable wallpaper. Now, if you remember, everyone's sort of licking the wallpaper, and uh, Wonka says, lick an orange. It tastes like an orange. The strawberries taste like strawberries. The snozberries taste like snozberries. <laughs> right? right. So, what, what's a snozberry? Well, what's a snozberry? Well, see, this is the thing. It got past the sections. It got past to everybody because uh, it wasn't until sort of much later on, in 1979, Roald Dahl, who wrote Willy Wonka, wrote another book, except this book was an adult novel called My Uncle Oswald. Wow. And uh, he, he, Uncle Oswald was the greatest fornicator of all time, according to this book. <laughs> and uh, along with his uh, sexy accomplice, Yasmin Halcombly, he devises a complicated get-rich-quick scheme that involves uh, Halcombly seducing Europe's most famous men and then selling used condoms full of their sperm uh, to women wishing to, you know, create children sure. with this, uh, this project. Uh, but snozberry uh, apparently is the term that they use for penis all the way through the movie. And, or the book. Yeah. And so uh, Yasmin Halcombly has an interaction with George Bernard Shaw and, uh, you know, of course, uh, Oswald says, how'd you manage to roll the old rubbery thing on him? And she says, there's only one way when they get violent. I grabbed hold of his snozberry and hung onto it like grim death and gave it a twist or two to make him hold still. So the line, the snozberries right. taste like snozberry, <laughs> takes on a whole different kind of uh, uh, feel, a little different glow, so to speak. So And how... Funny is it that in that book, uh, you know, that they're trying to seduce and sort of take advantage of famous people. That's actually famous people. It's not yeah, no, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. mentioning George Bernard Shaw. I know, I know. Uh, it's very funny. It's Snodsbury's comes up. So, But the thing I really wanted to talk about here, I just thought I'd throw that in because I touched mm -hmm. on it last week. Um, readable art. Now, I, you know, I've just been looking at some of this online. I don't really know a great deal of it. There's an artist that I, that I followed for many years uh, who uses a lot of text in his work. His name is John Baldessari. And his most famous piece, I guess, or certainly the piece that I'm most uh, familiar with, is uh, it's a sheet of paper, and he's just written on it, like you would lines when you're being punished in school. Okay. You would write lines on your, on your blackboard. And uh, he's just written, I will not make any more boring art, over right. and over and over again. This became kind of a, a, a very famous... Uh, piece of work because 
it was uh, a slap in the face to the established art world uh, in the early 70s. And, uh, you know, there, it, it, it expanded the notion of what art could be. I mean, people before that had certainly, you know, the idea of propping a urinal up in the corner of a room had already been, you know, explored. And, and you know, the debate raged for decades about that, whether it was actually art or not. Mm -hmm. um, this was a, a different thing. And he, John Belisari, went on to become uh, a very famous uh, uh, textural, uh, and I mean text like using text, uh, artist. Um, but then I found uh, a German artist named Ralph, and I'm probably saying his name wrong, but I think it's Utz Hofer. And, yeah, and he is that a Scottish accent you're still using? That's I'm excellent. still trying. I know Scottish uh, for everything. <laughs> uh, but uh, I sent over some photos for you to have a look at because I thought they were really cool. And what he does is he takes uh, photographs in some cases that he's taken, in other cases that are, are uh, uh, quite famous portraits of very famous people, okay. and then using text that he finds on the internet whether it's biographies from Wikipedia or uh, just, you know, whatever text, he, he creates, uh, the, recreates the photographs uh, using, you know, the, the natural shade and white and texture of the type. And so this obviously is Michael Jackson. If you were to zoom in on that, you would see that, because uh, from where I'm sitting right now, it kind of looks like uh, metal or, or it, it's, it's got a, it's right. got a really sort of interesting kind of texture to it. If you look at it a little bit more closely, you realize that each of those are letters. And of course, each of the letters forms a word and it tells Michael Jackson's life story from top to bottom. And, uh, I thought this was a, a really kind of interesting, uh, and unusual way of expressing, uh, yourself, uh, in terms of creating portraiture of people, because, you know, they always say, you know, to, can a picture, uh, really, uh, or kind of, what is it? Uh, a picture says a thousand words, and I think in this case, uh, both the the picture and the words say a great deal about who these people are. This is Andy Warhol, and uh, I just think that they're uh, they're interesting. And quite often, if you look at it, they're quite clearly uh, Wikipedia um, uh, entries that he's layered over these photographs. But I think they're quite beautiful, and I think that they're. Uh, something just a little unusual. He's certainly not the only person that is doing this kind of a readable art or text-related art. There's a, a number of other people, some of which do larger installations that, uh, you know, adorn the outsides of buildings or they're uh, uh, seen, you know, taking up entire walls and art galleries and that kind of thing. But this guy's work is uh, on display at the MoMA, and uh, uh, there are dozens of them, everyone from Jimi Hendrix, Andy Warhol to, you know, mostly it looks to me like baby boomer, uh, kind of heroes, but it's uh, interesting stuff. I thought it was really cool. And again, don't have a great uh, deal to say about it, not a great uh, deal of commentary to add to it. Other than there's David Bowie. Yeah. Uh, I, you, you knew, uh, you have to know that that's, that was my end to this guy's art. I was looking at uh, some other stuff online and this picture of David Bowie came up with all the text. And I thought that's cool. And uh, because I am the world's biggest Bowie geek and uh <laughs> And uh, I explored it from there and found the other ones. But uh, I just thought the, uh, the work was really interesting and sort of a different way of looking at portraiture and a, and a different spin on the uh, picture saying a thousand words. Well, and that kind of art, although it, it sounds like it, you might at first glance sort of think that it should be easy to kind of put together, is actually very, very difficult uh, when it comes to being able to choose imagery that has that contrast where the, the image is still there and very beautiful, but also has the readability factor to it that you can keep reading 
Yeah. One of the reasons why Apple got a lot of awards for their um, uh, their iPod ads when they first came out was that apparently it's really, really difficult to try to get perfect silhouettes of people, to have somebody that knows how to choose the right clothing. Right. Because other people try it, and it just looks like crap. And it, right. I think it's the same thing that if you sat down and uh, tried to use typeset and tried to compose a photograph, you'd find it really, really difficult to try to reproduce. Oh, yeah. Here. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, this guy, I imagine, I mean, I... Uh, you know, I imagine that he's been uh, doing this for many, many years. I see he was uh, born in 1966, so he's about uh, 46, 47 years old. And, uh, you know, he's been uh, an artist and a professional artist for a very long time, um, alongside with people like uh, Barbara Kruger, uh, who uh, um, has a very famous picture that is uh, a woman's face kind of bisected right down the middle, and half of it is... Uh, untouched, and then the other half is the mirror image of that, but done in an x-ray form, and then she's written on top of it, your body is a battleground, and uh, it's a famous uh, uh, piece of uh, uh, readable art, uh, pop culture art, and uh, Barbara Kruger, I think, is one of the kind of, uh, uh, sort of legendary figures of this readable art movement, but uh, uh, as I say, this uh, Ralph, uh, and I really apologize because I'm just crucifying his last name, but Ralph Utzenhofer uh, has made some very, very interesting work. Yeah, the only thing I know about German is that Hoff generally means head. Right. I don't know what Utz means, but we'll say he's like Ralph Smart Head or yeah, or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, go ahead. Over to you. Okay. So uh, one of the things that we often discuss here, as you just pointed out, is uh, obsessions, mm -hmm. uh, things that we're really passionate about. And uh, for me, I am so thrilled because something I've been waiting for for many, many decades has finally happened. Uh, when I was just a wee little boy of about seven years old, uh, yes. I, <laughs> I used to hang out with my father, who was a, a major pinball addict. So before right. there were video games, before there were computer games, people used to go to arcades that were full of one section would be billiard tables, the other section would be pinball. Oh, I'm, I'm a ridiculous pinball fiend myself. Okay, cool. A little known fact is that uh, I, I whiled away a good chunk of my youth playing pinball. Still love playing it. Uh, I have several moves that I like to think are my own. Right. Uh, but for years, my wrists hurt right here from banging on the sides of pinball machines. Because you learn with each pinball machine, after you've played it a few times, you learn you know, just how hard to hit the thing without tilting it and all that kind of stuff. And I actually wrote an article years ago. I can't remember what the name of the magazine was, but um, I hung out in pinball arcades all up and down Young Street when there used to be a lot of them. Yes. And I met the pinball players. I met these guys who would do things like, uh, wear steel-toed shoes so that they could prop up the pinball machine on the, <laughs> the tips of their, their steel-toed shoes That's to level cheating. it out a little bit. Yeah. It was cheating. But um, it, it, it was from those guys that I learned a lot of moves, a lot of sort of the tricky moves that you, uh, that you end up using if you're going to win. Yeah, and, and for me, I mean, initially it was just an excuse to hang out with my dad because this right. was something that was his sort of thing. And uh, the trick that he had was that, you know, at that time in our lives, we didn't have much money. 
And so pinball was a way that you could go out and spend an entire evening without having to spend a lot of cash if you yeah. were really good at it. Yeah, you yeah. could go into an arcade with $2 and be there for about three to four hours. Well, yeah, because you'd win games, way. right? Yeah, you'd win right. games and the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is something that we don't really have too often today. I mean, this right. idea of going in and that you could perpetually keep playing if you were really, really good at it. Yeah. And what he would do in particular is that he took me to the um, arcade at Union Station. And while he would start to play the $2 that he had, uh, as his little scout, I would run around and find people who had just heard their train called, and they would abandon their game <laughs> off the catch of the train. Wow. I, yeah, wow. I would snatch the pinball machine and right. wait for him to finish his quarter, and he'd come over, and then uh, you know we'd keep playing throughout the night like that. Wow. wow. And initially when I was very small, I mean, it, I couldn't reach both sides of the flipper, yeah. so I had to drag a little um, Max Milk carton around with me. And I'd step up, and I would take one flipper, and he would take the other flipper, and together we'd kind of synchronize and play wow. like that. Wow, wow. And do you remember the games? Because, you know, the games now are extraordinarily elaborate, and I like them. I like, you know, sure, playing yeah. a lot of the ones. But, you know, I remember back in the day, like, you know, playing like the Kiss pinball machine and stuff, which mm -hmm. didn't have a whole lot, but they were, you had to be good to play them. Uh, but they didn't have all the, like, literally bells and whistles that the new no. ones have. Well, a lot of the first generation, I mean, a lot of it was about just hitting the bumpers, bringing down the targets. Yeah. Uh, some of them were so out, you know, they were angled so high that the ball would just come rocketing right yeah, yeah. down at you. And if your reflexes weren't there to catch it, forget it. You could hear it just go thump. Yeah. And it kind of almost disappeared into the, uh, the bottom of your belly, you know, the That's way right. that the ball yeah. kind of hit. Uh, my father loved a machine that was called Flash. Had a guy on the, the, the top cover that uh, he was sort of, scantily clad it was big huge naked torso and holding a lightning bolt and uh i mean sometimes you pick the machine based off of the gameplay not always about what yeah, the imagery yeah. is up top yeah, yeah. When I was seven years old, I had finally gotten to the point where I could play pinball machines by myself. Right. Uh, I was still running around trying to scout out free games, and occasionally people would leave coins for me on the floor to kind of pick up and discover on my own so I could play. And one day we walked in, and there was a new machine in the corner, and this has become like my machine. Right. And it was um, called Gorgar. And Gorgar was this thing of pure menace, and evil, <laughs> and I don't know why I was initially attracted to it, uh, but the thing that makes Gorgar special is that Gorgar was the world's first talking pinball machine. Really? Oh, yes, and, and this was 1979 when it came out. Let me see if I can pull up a, a picture so you know what I'm, I'm talking about here. Is this it? That's it. They're good. Okay, so you can see that this was not the friendliest machine that was out there. I totally remember Gorgar. Yeah, Gorgar. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was an amazing machine because not only could he talk, and he would say things with that deep baritone voice of, Gorgar, want you. Yeah, yeah. But there was a, a heartbeat to the machine as well, oh, yeah. that it would go boom, boom, <laughs> boom, boom. And that really uh, fascinated me like crazy. Even though I was too young to really be into that heavy metal, devil-worshipping kind of scene, the fact yeah, you got into that later, yeah. That's much, right. much later, yes. When I was very young, that wasn't, I mean, I was, I was intimidated by this. You can right. imagine that when we first walked into the arcade, my father went over to get change, and I sauntered in and looked and just stopped. And yeah. kind of like, what's that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and dragged my milk carton over and kind of tentatively put a quarter in. I was, you know, kind of, it's not my thing, big, huge devil, Satan, yeah. uh, scantily clad woman being sacrificed, but the idea that this machine could talk, 
that it had a heartbeat, that really uh, drew me. I've always been fascinated by technology that seems to be alive. Right. Uh, so I, I loved this machine. I also loved the, I mean, it was very appropriate because compared to other machines, it was very easy. You didn't have a lot right. of targets. Right. But as you played the machine, what was amazing about it was the heartbeat would slowly accelerate based on the action. So That's funny. Start, yeah, if you started to get scores going higher, then you'd hear going ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum. Well, and I mean, I wonder how much of that was just to try and throw you off a little bit because you know, anytime uh, there's any kind of change in a game like that, when it starts to go faster and stuff, it, it makes you react somehow. And the heartbeat is something. I imagine if it stays steady for a long time and it starts to speed up, your general reaction would be to sort of react to it somehow, whether or not it makes you anxious because the heartbeat. Typically, a faster heartbeat kind of reflects people feeling anxiety. So I just wonder if that uh, would throw you off the game or not. Well, completely. And you're talking about a game here. And where that thing's staring at you yeah, while you're you got, trying to play. Completely. And there's this uh, sense that it's almost like uh, the devil versus Daniel the mouse, where you are trying to protect this woman who was sent there to be sacrificed, and you right. have to defeat Gorgar himself, <laughs> uh, which I love that kind of concept, that idea of storytelling. And, and – you know, as you would play, you would actually be able to get the, the ball up to a reptilian trap up to the top, a magnetic trap that would seize the ball. Right. You would actually react and say, oh, you know, Gorgar hurt. You've hurt him, and you've got to keep hand, hammering away. Right, now, right. the thing about this machine, I love this machine. Of all the pinball machines, this has been the one that sort of I connect with. Uh, I used to, as a little kid, when all of us would sit around and dream about what kind of arcades we'd have in our homes. <laughs> you know? Do they still have them? Are they still around? Well, the problem with them, there was twofold. Because I did, as I got older, I promised myself, I'm going to find one, I'll restore it, I'll put it in my home. Yeah. Uh, and then as about the 1980s, 1990s came around, you start checking on eBay, there are two problems. One is that unlike other video games and other machines of entertainment, pinball machines were released in very low quantity, quantities. Right. There were only 14,000 Gorgar machines made. Really? Well, and to be honest, most pinball machines, they're only made to last for about maybe five, nine years. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them, if you still found them in an arcade, it was because there was one really dedicated guy at the arcade who would fix and maintain and, Yeah, knew how to rewire them and fix the lights and stuff, yeah. Well, even the one that I played uh, ended up getting broken because I, of course, got really good at playing Gorgar. Right. And what ended up happening was that the sound of Gorgar, even though it was far better, I mean, to me, this was the first machine that I came across that when it spoke, it sounded very convincing and compelling. Right. It wasn't that, welcome to the yeah. World's Fair kind of thing. It was, you know, real speech. But it was done using a magnetic tape. And so wow. the, the different sections of the magnetic tape would play or yeah. at different speeds to represent what you were doing. And the problem was that for the really high end of the sound, where the heartbeats just went brrrr, yeah. it had broken. And yeah. someone had gone in and to fix it, they'd actually taken a section of audio tape from an F1 racing car uh, pinball machine and had spliced it in. Wow. So if you were wow. really good at Gorgar and you got it really going, eventually the heartbeat would turn into the engine of an F1 racing <laughs> That's car. That's so random. That is so good. It could have been anything. It could have been like a Sunny and Cher song. It could have been uh, anything that they could put in there. Totally. Wow. But it worked beautifully because you'd get up there and it'd be and all of a sudden you're wow. fantastic sound to hear out of this machine. Um, but I had looked into it over the years because I always thought that that might be a cool project to get my hands on one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, they're really hard to find, and they generally are in very poor disrepair. Right. So it was something that I had kind of given up on. 
So here we are. Finally this week, there is a company uh, called Farsight Studios. And what they have done is they've, um, big, huge pinball fiends like you and I, decided that the time had come for to, to carry forth and preserve these machines and to do it digitally. Right. So what they do is they scour the United States, they scour the world to try to find the best condition of certain machines. Right. They bring it to their studio, they spend months restoring it, bringing it to immaculate shape, contacting the manufacturers, getting you know replacement decals, all that kind of stuff, uh, balancing out the table to make sure that the physics are all cool. They get it to the point where it's just beautiful, then they tear it apart. <laughs> and they scan, 3D scan every component. Every light, every bumper, they scan right. all the decals, they record all the, the sounds, and they recombine this into a digital simulation that is now available on the iPad. And so here I am, I'm going to pull it up, that after many, many years of sort of dreaming and, and hoping that I could one day get my hands to play just the machine again, just to have yeah. that experience again, I actually have Gorgar. Oops. And you can hear the... Oh, yeah, there's the heartbeat, yeah. There's the heartbeat right there. So they've actually recreated it as a video game experience, and it's, it's beautiful in terms of creating a replica. The, the physics are there, uh, the gorgeous scenery, the, 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 the Satan that's staring out. There he is. That is terrifying. Now, how do you, how do you flip the flippers? Is it it's like, just by you know, well, touching the, your thumbs on either side of the screen. Really, because, you know, remember the, the other thing? Okay. <laughs> All Those the are awesome guys. arcade setups. But remember, you know, other uh, pinball machines you'd have, you know, you use your keyboard, right, and, and sort of hit. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. And it was terrible. It never played like anything. It never felt like you were playing. No, let's see if I can get the heartbeat going here. <laughs> I love these sound effects. I mean, this, to me, is just as representative of the arcade as the waka waka of Pac-Man. Right, yeah, 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 Hearing yeah. these sound effects. I've heard these in my dreams for many, many years. Oh, yeah, um, no, listen, those are absolutely... I remember uh, right at Young and Dundas, just north of Young and Dundas in Toronto, there were two arcades that faced one another. There was Funland, and then, which was on street level, right. uh, next to the Sunrise Records, and then there was another one on the other side of the street that used to be by the Music World that you had to go downstairs to get. Yeah. That was the dirty one. That was it. That was it. I think it was called the pin spot. Pin, might have been the pin spot, yeah. Right. And it was not, it was a little rougher down there. But as you walked anywhere from, you know, Edward Street, which is a block or so down, up to Gerard almost, all you heard were those sounds. Oh, yeah, you know? completely. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that I finally have my own personal Gorgar pinball machine, and it wasn't something that, I had to spend months restoring right. just to watch it break down again or hear, you know, what do you do with a large machine like this that has a heartbeat constantly going on? Yeah, do you yeah. leave that in your apartment so that people can come <laughs> in and go, what's going oh, on? You know? That's the neighbors. Yeah, so well, you, how did you get it? Where do you, where do you get it? How do you do uh, it? Well, there's an app that you can download called the, the Pinball Arcade. And right. it's available for all the platforms, from iPad to iPhone right. to Android, Xbox 360, Sony PlayStation 3, even the Nintendo DS. And every I'm month, looking right now. I'm going to look for it right now. Every month they release two new pinball tables. Right. So they've already done uh, the Bride of Pinbot, for example, uh, <laughs> Aladdin, uh, Magic Theater. They're all fantastic, but every month they're going to come up with two. What they came into, these guys are really dedicated. I'll, I'll post a video where they explain the, the meticulous process that they go in restoring these pinball machines. Because normally yeah. 
most, as you're right, most pinball uh, games that you can get for a computer or, or a video game system, they're not great. They don't really, you know, bring back the memories in terms of what the old machines were capable of. No. This well, is the closest I've seen so far. Yeah, well, most of the other ones that you could get weren't based on old pinball machines. They were just kind of like, you know, digital versions of a pinball machine. They weren't, you know, it wasn't Gorgar. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't anything like that. So um, I'm downloading that app as we speak. <laughs> Well, and one of the issues that they came uh, across in terms of trying to do certain tables, like the, the biggest pinball machine of all time is considered to be the Twilight Zone. Oh, where you have good. the yeah. Star Trek pinball machine. But the problem is, and you're very familiar with this, is all the licensing that's involved in trying to get a hold oh, yeah, of that yeah. property. So what they've done is uh, we talked about on, I think, our second episode about a, a, an online project called Kickstarter where you can yeah. raise funds. Yeah, yeah. Well, they've used Kickstarter to raise the $50,000 they need just to get the licensing fees to release the Twilight Zone pinball machine. They're going after Star Trek. So I'm, it's surprised it's, I'm surprised it's only $50,000. I mean, it's, you know, listen, yeah. it's not like I have that in my wallet here, but it doesn't seem like that much money to me for what it is, you know, for a, for a, a legendary kind of brand like Twilight Zone. You would, I would have imagined in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, completely. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, a fantastic little thing that, of course, I'm glad you're, you're into. But for me, I'm really, really happy. I eventually came to really love Gorgar, despite the, the, the Satan and all of that, yeah, yeah. because it kind of makes sense. Uh, some people today, they may not realize, but every generation has to go through this point where their pastime is vilified. Uh, I spent, like, an entire decade appearing on TV and talking about violence in video games and talking to people and pointing out that pinball machines used to go through this, where there right. was this sense that, you know, pinball needed to be banned because thought it was very a sexual activity. You're thrusting yourself up against the machine. Uh, there some places they would ban it because they thought it was a form of gambling. Right. If you were inserting a quarter, but you could potentially win more games, that kind right, of thing. Right, right, right. So there was a time in which vil uh, pinball machines were considered to be very, very evil. I got a feeling that Gorgar was kind of that response of, you think this yeah. is evil? Fine, here you go. There yeah, you, was, you have your Here's the heavy metal response. Well, I mean, I, I think that anything that was seen, I mean, you know, you have to remember that. Because uh, pinball machines, I mean, you know, the ones that we've been talking about date from the 70s and 80s. But, I mean, pinball machines have been around since, you know, Forever, 1930s, since the 1930s, 20s, at yeah. least, 20s or 30s. And so uh, they would have with them this kind of stigma of money wasters. And, and back in a, in, a, in a time that was a bit more puritanical, at a time where, you know, Toronto was still called Toronto the Good and other cities, uh, you know, banned dancing in nightclubs and that kind of thing. The idea that you would just pump money into this machine just to have a few minutes of mindless kind of fun with no real benefit to it probably uh, irked a lot of people. Sure, yeah. A lot of people that wore very high-collared shirts and big ties. <laughs> what is all this frivolous time this, wasted in an yes. arcade? They've spent pennies on this pinball machine. <laughs> all right, so uh, I will certainly post some information yeah. on that. And if anybody's watching, they're a huge pinball fiend, I would love to know about your experiences with pinball games. I have plenty of stories I can tell you about my days in the arcade. It's really a great part of my, my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've already downloaded the uh, Pinball Arcade uh, application, so I'll be and using that a little bit later. I mean, for me, the amazing thing about it was I think the price was $2 to download Gorgar. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Well, the, the app that I just downloaded was free, and right. so that that's the gateway to get you in to download the other stuff, Correct. right? So uh, a buck or two for that is wicked. 
Well, and you can even try every table that they have in their collection without having to pay any money. So oh, they do cool. have a system where you can try them all, and every month they have one that's just free play all month long. So there is that not only the, the, the fact that you can actually have this technology on your little mobile devices, but it's put together by people who are there for the passion of right. it all and make it accessible and are there to try to restore and hold on to this culture and keep it from fading away. Well, it's a, it's a cool thing that you can download them for your, you know, your devices, your yeah. you know, iPads and computer stuff, because uh, it's harder and harder to find the actual machines anywhere. It's hard if you want it. It used to be relatively easy to find a pinball machine, and uh, it's not anymore. And, I, you know, I do miss it. So even though it's not the same exactly yeah. or even at all, but it's, it's, it's just still fun that, to have in front of you. But uh, still, get out there. If you've never played a pinball machine, and I'm sure I had someone on my radio show a little while ago who told me that she had never held an actual LP in her hand, an actual no. like, vinyl record. She never owned one and never actually held one. And this is someone who works in radio now, and she's old wow. enough to have a job. It wasn't like I had a child on the show. So I'm sure that there may be people out there watching who have never played a pinball machine. If you haven't, get out there and do it. All right, cool. And uh, this brings us again to the part of the show where we square off. And yes. movie pistols yes. at dawn. And uh, our topic this week is creepy babies. Oh, the creepy baby. Creepy babies. So what we're looking for here, and it's not just the picks that I make or the picks that you make, Richard, but are the creepiest babies in movies. Uh, those of you who are watching, if you know of any creepy babies, scary babies, strange babies, by all means, uh, go to our website, put it in the comments, send us an email. I'd like to hear about them. because <laughs> I, I did a bit of research, and there's a lot of them out there. Well, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a whole subgenre of the creepy kid movie, right? And right. the creepy kid movie is different than the creepy baby movie. I think the creepy kid movie is, you know, five, six, seven, and up. And, you know, that's movies, uh, um, you know, where you just like the omen is a creepy kid movie, you know, right. where you've got like the kid with the sort of glassy eyes with that faraway look in their you know, eyes that say things like, you know, everything's going to be okay, mama. <laughs> Everything will be okay. There's nothing to worry about, you know, don't make me angry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of those out there. Uh, the creepy baby movies, there are many of them as well. Rosemary's Baby, although you never really see the baby. You do a little bit, but that might be the, the sort of best known of them all, but there are many, many others. Yeah. Well, my choice uh, this week is, uh, for me, one of the most memorable babies of all time and yes. one that is great because it's, it's a big mystery in terms of movie technology, uh, and yeah. that is the a very strange infant in David Lynch's Eraserhead. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, which is, I love this movie. I love Eraserhead. It is such a weird experience. Even now, 40 years or whatever it's been since it was made, it is still it still has the power to get in there and twist your brain around. And I love that uh, when they were making this movie, Lynch made it just as he had money. He didn't, you know, get 50000 or $100,000 together and then make the movie. He shot it little bit by little bit. So there were literally scenes of characters, like, opening a door, and then the camera cuts to the other side of the door and watch them come through that were shot two years later because right. they literally – it took that long to get this movie made. No, it's a remarkable film. It's it's a real experience movie. A lot of people who see it can't really tell you necessarily what it's about. You do yep. get a sense of what it's about, but it's really something to just sort of watch and experience because guaranteed it's un unlike any other film that you've seen. <laughs> One of the, the central parts of the movie is that you have this young couple who uh, are have gotten married, they've moved in together, and they give uh, they have a, a child. 
and expressing the anxiety that often comes with a young couple, especially those with very low means, in trying to deal with all the pressures of being parents, they give birth to this thing, which, you know, almost looks like a mutated, premature kind of, you know, strange baby. Uh, in fact, I've got a bit of a, a photo here. Very hard to find one online, but I will see what I can show. This is, oddly enough, uh, the best I could find, and it's a T-shirt. Right. <laughs> Somebody actually put this. Oh, up. yeah, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, remarkable little creature. Uh, sort of like E.T. almost. Yeah, it's got a kind of a chicken kind of uh, yeah. look or feel to it. And, I mean, it's it's really compelling because the actors are so convincing in terms of doting on this creature, dealing with it as if it were alive. Uh, the great thing about the movie, of course, is the sound design. David Lynch was very much a pioneer. The sound in that movie, in just terms of creating an atmosphere, was fantastic. But also the baby. It's not your typical wah, wah. Yeah. It's, you know, they create convincing sounds. Uh, the thing about this movie is that not only do I think it's a perfect expression of the anxiety of having a little kid and trying to be parents, but I love that this, this particular creation is an absolute mystery even today. Right. No one knows how David Lynch created that particular special effect. <laughs> As you pointed out, he was just an art student. This was his yeah. first film, slowly piecing it together. Uh, I love the fact that he did this in 1977. So you have George Lucas on one end, right. doing all this amazing special effects, and then you have David Lynch, who knows, putting together this very convincing puppet. Yeah. not quite sure what it is. Uh, he has never spoken as to what it is. A lot of people have theories, one of the most popular out there, is that this is a, um, a, a cow fetus that had been embalmed that maybe he picked up at a circus sideshow or something. But well, I don't it really has that kind of feel to it. I mean, you know, you do, like many years ago, you don't see this sort of thing anymore, but circus sideshows would have, you know, things like two-headed chickens, which were essentially like taxidermied chickens that had been sewn together and, you know, a new creature had been created. Out of uh, out of you know existing real animals, so maybe I mean I'm looking at it trying to think what it is, but it, it looks sort of looks like a, a little horse head or something. Almost. Yeah, there's definitely something very strange and unusual that's going on there. If you see the movie though, uh, I, even today I was watching it just before we started here. I can't believe how lifelike it seems to be. The right. way that the eyes move. Uh, you can see the breathing in terms of its neck. Yeah. Uh, I love the fact that it's got a little tongue that. Right. out of its mouth and the lips curl, but that also that it can spit and it can breathe. Right. And I would challenge any special effects guy to try to put that together today using modern materials like silicon. It would still be a big challenge. Uh, this drove some filmmakers absolutely crazy. Apparently Woody Allen would repeatedly ask how uh, David Lynch put it together. Stanley Kubrick is notoriously obsessed about it. He spent a lot of years hammering away at David Lynch, and David Lynch was just stubborn and said, no, I'm never going to tell anybody wow. how wow. I put that together, otherwise it ruins the magic. And Kubrick, though, I mean, it drove him nuts, because at that time, he was starting to do 2001 The Space Odyssey. Right. He was doing all of his films, using a lot of advanced movie technology, and it just drove him nuts that he couldn't understand or figure out how David Lynch created that baby. So for those of you who haven't seen the movie, watch it and realize that you're seeing this 40 years later. Yeah. Technology has come a long way, and still, I challenge you to try <laughs> to figure out how you made that thing, because I that's, have no idea. That's funny. You know, I, I can understand David Lynch uh, driving these people crazy, Woody Allen and Stanley Kubrick. I interviewed him once, and I'm a huge Lynch fan. I was in awe. I was sitting very close to him 
He was a foot in front of me, probably. He was smoking cigarettes. He was smoking American spirit cigarettes. And he had a black suit on with his white shirt, you know, trademarks sort of all done up to the top. Sure. His hair was insane. <laughs> and he was smoking. And he was, I, I, we were talking in a very general way about ideas. Where do ideas come from? What is an idea? How do you know when you've got the good idea? And he took the cigarette almost like a baton here, like, you know, like smoking this. And he started like talking to me, like waving the cigarette at me like this. <laughs> it's lit and it's burning. And uh, so he's like, you know, ideas are like going out fishing. You know, sometimes you cast your line out there and you catch something and you go, oh, that's a good one, that's a good one, and you reel it in. Then he realized it's just a little fish. It's just a little fish. I'm going to throw that one back and let it grow a little bit more, and I'm going to cast my line again. So this is essentially what he's saying, that, you know, ideas sometimes take some time, and you have to give them time to mature. But he's, you know, you know, doing this with a cigarette the entire time. So by the time that the interview is over, I'm wearing a black suit, and I'm just covered, and I look like I've, I've just partially been cremated almost. I'm just covered <laughs> in ashes. Uh, but as I stood up, I was kind of like, well, they're dating Lynch's ashes. So that's okay by me. Yeah, completely. I'm cool with that. <laughs> um, my uh, my uh, baby is uh, a little grosser, maybe. Wow. Okay. Little, well, maybe not grosser, but I mean, you know, yours, uh, your the the eraser head baby. At least you you actually feel something for the eraser head right. baby uh, it's, because it, it's an innocent and you know it, it is it is a creature of some sort. But uh, you do come to feel something for this weird little creature that you don't quite understand what it is. Uh, in the movie The Fly, however. Oh, wow. Yeah, you don't so much. Um, <laughs> you know, it, but it, it, in some ways, I guess maybe you do. But, you know, you're Gina Davis. You're uh, dating a crazy mad scientist, a genius, played by Jeff Goldblum, who happens to have kind of mutated himself partially into fly land. So he's actually slowly becoming more and more fly-like. So you become pregnant by fly man, and uh, then you give birth to what can only be described as a big kind of maggot baby. And... Uh, <laughs> A large cylindrical kind of larvae that yeah. comes out of you, and and it's dripping and it's red. It's a David Cronenberg movie, so you, you know he is all about body horror, and certainly in those days, maybe not so much right this second, but it's all about body horror and you know the these these the, the transformation of you know the Jeff Goldblum character Grundle from man into fly, and then this human woman that gives birth to this fly baby, this thing. <laughs> Uh, and, and it is. It's a red tube, it kind of looks like, because, of course, uh -huh. it's in its larvae sort of state. But the interesting thing is, when you see this clip, it's David Cronenberg actually giving birth to the, or, or who's the doctor, right. um, you know, facilitating the birth of the uh, icky fly larvae. <laughs> so uh, that is my choice, because... It's memorable. One scene, yeah, that's it. Yeah, one one scene. This one is kind of hard to uh, kind of hard to get out of your head. <laughs> quite, quite horrible. Yes. All right. So uh, that'll be uh, that'll be on the website. Uh, the the poll. Go to heyallyouzombies.com and uh, you know vote for the fly. That's all I'm saying. That's my final pitch. <laughs> well, fly you baby. know, I I, I all those as grotesque. As the, the baby from Eraserhead is, I'm going to put up some videos, and I think, like me, you may fall in love with them.
Oh, All right. So with that, softy. <laughs> we bid you adieu and uh, <laughs> look forward to seeing you next week. Goodbye. See ya.